Okay, let's uh, just bow our hearts as we turn to God's word together, shall we? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is living and powerful. And Father, thank you that it tells us everything we need to know. Lord, it tells us everything we need to know about the world in which we live, but it tells us everything we need to know about our eternal destiny. It tells us our own predicament and how, Lord, there is a way because of your great sacrifice in sending your son for us. So, Father, help us this morning as we just carry on our study in this wonderful book of Genesis just to learn a little bit more about you, of your greatness, of your just incredible design in the world in which we live. And Lord, just help us to be encouraged and edified through these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're carrying on. We're going to come towards the end of of chapter 1 this morning. What we're going to look at um, is the beginning of life on planet Earth. We're talking about the importance of blood. We'll see that connection in just a moment. Uh, And then what we see as well is marine life. Uh, be created, the winged fowl, all the birds and so on. And we'll just look at briefly about the, the evidence of design that we see in these things. Uh, and then finally we get to God's masterpiece, mankind. Fearfully and wonderfully made, we're told in Psalms. And that we're told that we're made in his image. So these are the things we're going to look at. And then we just conclude by asking, what about Eve? Where does Eve fit in? And uh, when was Eve created and so on? So we'll just look at that to conclude. So we're going to pick up Genesis chapter 1. Verse 20, which is where we've got to. And we read, And God said, Let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creature that has life, and fowl that it may fly above the earth in the open firmament of heaven. And we, we looked at that verse previously, that's really saying in the face of the firmament of heaven, this canopy that seemingly was surrounding the earth at one time. Verse 21, And God created great whales and every living creature that moves which the waters brought forth abundantly after their kind, every winged fowl after his kind, and God saw that it was good. And verse 22 says, And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let the fowl multiply in the earth. And the evening and the morning were the fifth day. So we're on day five of creation now. Now, this is interesting because life now begins. Now, when we're talking about life from a biblical perspective, we're not talking about plants and vegetation. Yes, they are alive, but we're talking about the beginning of self-replicating and conscious life. And this is different to the the plant life that's out there. It's the first time in the Hebrew the word uh, kahi appears in the Bible, which is the word for life. So this is from a biblical perspective, life now truly begins on earth. And God makes a very clear distinction between non-conscious plants and vegetation and that which has a distinct self-awareness. And particularly we're looking here at the marine life and the birds and so on. Now, the interesting thing is that this distinction is also seen uh, when we get uh, a little bit further on in that which God gives for food. Because before Adam's sin, there was no death. And yet, of course, if Adam and Eve and their descendants were to be eating plants and herbs and vegetables and so on uh, and fruit, then clearly those things would die in that sense. But because they're not strictly alive from a biblical perspective, that's, that's why that distinction is very clear and very obvious. But the real fundamental difference between that which is living from a biblical perspective and that which is not living is blood. That is what makes the difference. Prior to the flood, only plants of vegetation were to be eaten, and again, those do not have blood. Leviticus 17 verse 11 makes this statement. It says, the life of the flesh is in the blood. And thus life and blood, we find, are extricably linked uh, from this verse. And what we see is that that which does not rely on blood for its survival is not truly alive in that sense. And there's again a very profound and deeper truth that we see here as well. Because by inference we could deduce that blood was created on day five. Because that which is living, that which has blood was created on day five, blood itself was created on day five. Now that's quite interesting because five in scripture numerically always is used to speak of grace. Uh, One example, Benjamin's portion when they go to visit Joseph was five times greater 
Uh, there's the, the man at Solomon's porch and, and, and there's, there's fives all around that situation as well uh, as he's healed. And there's lots of occasions where we find fives are used to speak of grace. Well, we're day five now. And what a greater picture of grace could you want to find than blood itself? Because grace is dependent, God's grace is dependent upon the blood of Christ. And it's interesting again that that which is that which doesn't have blood is not truly alive in a, in a physical sense, but in a spiritual sense, that which is not based upon the blood of Christ is ne- neither is that truly alive from a spiritual perspective. If you want life, then it has to be through the blood of Christ. So there's a lovely picture that we see in the way and the order that God creates things here. And of course, that blood has been given, as we saw, as we celebrated in our communion this morning, that we might have everlasting life. Okay, let's move on to look at the marine life and the birds and so on. And we just see this incredible evidence of design. Back in, or in, in moving forward into Romans chapter 1, verse 20, we're told there that the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen being understood by things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. This is quite a challenging verse for anybody that would reject the Bible, reject God as the author of creation, and would opt for some man-made idea or theory. Because this verse is simply saying, God himself is saying that people do not have an excuse if they reject him as creator, because it's so obvious See, the evidence of design is so obvious that you have to be willingly ignorant not to see it. And the kind of the Greek idea of that is really dumb on purpose. And that, it is as simple as that because when you look at the evidence, you can't logically conclude that everything we see, the complexity of design in nature, could have come about in any other way than from a supreme intelligence that's beyond anything that we know or understand. Now, just looking at some of the marine life that we see, I mean, you've got kind of Nemo and Dory and so on down the bottom there, but you've got your jellyfish and your whales and all these big ugly fish and catfish and all those kind of things. Yeah, and you go on, and you can see up at the top there you've got a piranha uh, and another jellyfish with just incredible glowing lights in the depth of these things. Sharks, of course, big whales, You've got flatfish, you've got eels, electric eels, and just a whole variety of things. I, mean, I was looking last night, just going through, just finding some of these pictures, and I was surprised to see the number of different varieties of lobsters, and even the different colours. They've got a lovely blue lobster down the bottom there, and shrimp, and all these things. And, you know, the Bible says that God said, let the waters bring forth abundantly. Well, that's exactly what we see. You see, I mean, it really is just, just what God has said is what we see in the world when we go and look at it. And again, you've got an octopus up the top there, you've got a turtle and so on, and even all the different types of coral and, you know, plants and so on, you know, and uh, anemones, I was going to do a joke about with friends like that, you don't need anemones, but I'm not going to do that. Um, you know, but all the starfish you've got, and I have absolutely no idea what that creature is on the, the right-hand side there in the middle. I don't know, I've never ever seen that before, but it's like some hippopotamus hoover thing that sweeps the bottom of the ocean. Starfish and, again... And then that, that little chappy in the bottom left there. I don't know who he is or what he is. But this is what we see. Now, do we honestly think this is the product of mutations? Just random coincidence and chance and so on? I mean, really, when we break this down, we've only got two choices. Either this incredible diversity is the result of random mutations over millions of years, or God's word is true. Now, let me just ask you, which is the more scientific? Well, of course the world would immediately respond and say that an evolutionary framework is more scientific. Nonsense. Evolution couldn't produce those kind of things. Mutations do not produce anything new. They simply scramble existing information. You can't get that kind of diversity from mutations. Evolution by natural selection just cannot account for the diversity that we find. So immediately, from a scientific perspective, we have to discount that. And we've got a book, the Bible, that tells us how it was done. 
Now, is it any less scientific to go to the Bible and say, well, the Bible makes this claim. Let's go and test and see whether this is true. Have the waters brought forth abundantly? Yes, they absolutely have. Do we see evidence of design? Unquestionably. Even in regard to symmetry of these living creatures and the things that we find in the oceans. It's it's, it's staggering when you start to really look at these things. So those that would argue and claim that Christians and people believe the, that believe the Bible are unscientific, I mean, really, they're speaking nonsense. Because it is far more logical to assume or to believe that God has created and everything is the product of an intelligent designer than to believe that all of this could have happened on its own with unguided chance mutations and so on, which just scientifically can't happen. Evolution doesn't offer a viable mechanism. There's nothing within the evolutionary theory that can explain or account for these things. Now, it's interesting, just a quote here. There's, um, some years ago, a deadly new sea creature lures fish with red lights. That was a headlines in a, a scientific journal. It says, for fish, the red light district is deeper and more dangerous than anyone imagined. A newfound deep sea relative of the jellyfish flashes glowing red lights on twitching, stinging tentacles to lure fish to their deaths more than a mile below the surface. The discovery is odd, because scientists had figured deep-sea animals can't see red light since they live where sunlight does not reach and therefore have no evolutionary reason to detect the colour. When I said the translucent, fragile creature is the first marine invertebrate ever found that produced red light. The discovery detailed in July the 8th issue of the journal Science was led by, oh, this is fantastic, by Stephen Haddock. What a great name for a marine biologist. But the fact that this, this, this is true, was led by Stephen Haddock of Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute. I mean, but they find these things. And science has got no explanation if you go down that evolutionary path. But when you understand that there's a God who is infinite in power and wisdom, well, why wouldn't we expect to find things like this? And even more bizarre and strange, God really has created everything. Just as he said, it gets to the end of the, the fifth day and says, it's good. And it really is. And of course, one of our, our favorite marine creatures is, of course, the dolphin. But the dolphin itself is an engineering masterpiece. If you look at the complexity of a dolphin, it really is quite breathtaking. But the really fascinating thing is that the dolphin uses this sonar, that little blue bit right in its head there. Now, what it's doing is sending out these signals and listening to the echo, the bounce back. But it's got to reconcile these sounds through the different velocities of water and then it's passing through its skin and so on. But dolphins use this to find food. You can't evolve that. Because you get very, very hungry waiting for millions of years why this thing kind of sorts itself out. This either works or it doesn't. It's either there from the start or it's not. And there's no reason, if the dolphin was already quite happy eating, there's no reason why it would develop this. Nor could it choose to do so if it wanted to. All these things just show incredible design. What happens if we move on and look at the winged fowl, the birds and so on? Well, once again, we see incredible diversity. You know, all sorts of creatures. My mum used to love owls. We had owls all around, not real ones, but, you know, ornaments of owls all around the house when I was younger. But all sorts of creatures and the bright colours we see on these things. You know, what's the evolutionary reason? And how would they develop and change their colours accordingly? Just so many birds and things, just just incredible. Uh, and you know, the, the, those that that feed off the sea, those that feed from rocks and mountains, and and those that live on the insects, just incredible. I mean, you've seen how birds hover. You take hawks and things like that. There's one there at the bottom is out of breath. It's a puffin. It's a, you know, and then just amazing, isn't it? And then we have that one. Oh, I apologize for that. that that's, that's a rubber duck. Um, I don't know whether you noticed that and whether you spotted a difference there between that and the other birds. Uh, and let me ask the question, who believes that a rubber duck could form by random processes? Anybody? Do you think that could just come about by chance? If we just left for millions of years that maybe some of the plastics could mold together and it would form this shape and you'd get the coloration of the beak, maybe due to some solar radiation or something and... 
the eyes happen to appear in just the right places, spaced equally either side of the head. Do you think that can happen by chance? You know, it's got no moving parts. Doesn't have a digestive system. Doesn't have a nervous system. Hasn't got any feathers to evolve or to worry about. But compare that to a real duck. Now think about the complexity. You see, nobody here this morning would believe that a rubber duck, a toy duck, could just evolve, could just come about by random processes. And yet, our school, our education system, and our universities still try and teach people that the real deal, the real ducks, the real creatures, are just products of accidents. It doesn't make any sense. It's so unscientific, it's incredible that it's still taught. Many have made comments showing how foolish this idea is. One scientist made the comment that said that evolution is useless. It's helped nothing in the progress of science. In fact, I'd go further and say it's been a real hindrance because it stopped people pursuing various areas of inquiry because they don't fit in the evolutionary model. When we look at birds, we look at feathers. I mean, look at a peacock for an example. Just incredible, the beauty, the symmetry, the design in this. And really, again, we're supposed to believe that this is just an accident. Let me just read this to you. I'm not sure whether you've ever stopped to think about feathers before. Probably not. Um, but, you know, we see feathers you know, blowing along the side of roads sometimes or in fields. Um, well, according to uh, this article, it says, Feathers have a basic form of a central hollow supporting shaft called the rachis and a number of fine side branches. These side branches have even finer sub-branches in contour feathers. The side branches in these are called barbs and are linked together by a set of barbels and they're hooklets sometimes called humuli. Barbs have side branches of their own called uh, barbels. Uh, the upper ones containing a series of hooklets and the lower ones... Uh, without hooks, but slightly convex in form to catch the hooklets of the uh, barbels from the next barbel along the shaft. And this is best, this is perhaps best understood by seeing the diagram and you can see the picture there. Uh, that's not something that is just going to happen. These are interdependent parts that we see here. And this is uh, the base of the feather. Uh, where there are no side branches is called the, the calamus or quill and at the base of this is the hollow entrance that was used by blood veins to carry nutrients to the growing feather when it was alive and this is called the uh, inferior umbilicus this is the gripping effect of any one set of barbel hooklets is not great but like the threads that hold your clothes together, the combined effect is sufficient to keep the feathers together. And it says playing with any winged feather can demonstrate the effect of these tiny attachments. The overall presence of all these barbs and barbels together is called the vein of the wing. And the rachis and the vein are two parts of the feather you see with the naked eye. I mean, these are incredibly skillfully designed. You know, come up with a theory as to how that could happen on its own. And this is just a simple feather. We haven't started talking about things like digestive systems and nervous systems and so on. I'm not going to read all of this to you. It'll be in the notes if you want to have a look yourself. But the complexity, the way that the feathers are designed, that you have a leading edge which is facing the wind and then a trailing edge which is obviously uh, going away from the wind, but then provides lift for the bird and so on. And it really is quite incredible. And you look at these things, again, that they provide protection from the sunlight and from the wind and from the rain and all of those kind of things. Again, you look there, you can just see all the various sections that you find in the wing and the feathers that cover the wing. It's not something that could just happen by chance. It has to be there. It has to work. And we're told, of course, that feathers just evolved. That reptiles gradually turn their hands, we'll talk about this in just a moment, but turn their hands into these feathery things and that then led to flight. It's not at all, I mean, it's far more complex than that. I mean, birds have got these lightweight skeletons. They've got hollow bones. Not like our bones, but they're lightweight so that they can fly, so they can get the lift. This fused fulcrum absorbs the shock and, shock and facilitates breathing. They obviously lay eggs so their young develop external to the body so they don't have to carry their young around. So again, easier for them to fly. And their reproductive organs also atrophy outside of breathing season, again, to reduce weight and so on. They have an incredibly fast metabolism. 
Um, the lungs, incidentally, I thought this was fascinating, they open at each end and they're completely different to any other vertebrae. You know, where the, the breathing, incredible, 450 breaths per minute. And they have a larger heart to cope with the higher altitude. You start to look at this and can you honestly say that you think this could have come about by accident? No, this is the work of a skillful designer. We already mentioned feathers and so on, and they, again, they help with the aerodynamics, the body heat and so on, but feet are another area. You know, different birds have different types of feet for the environments they're suited to. You can't just change it by will. It's not something you can just make different because you want to move to a different climate or environment. All of these have been fitted for purpose. They're designed to do what they do, and what they do do, they do do well. So on. I just want to talk a little bit about this whole idea of mutation because a mutation is a loss or rearranging of information, as I said a moment ago. I just take, for example, if you take the word Christmas, you can make a number of other words from that word. But the problem is, you're never going to be able to make words like Xerox or Zebra or Zebra, depending if you're English or American, or Queen, because those letters are not there to choose from in the first place. That's the way it is with mutations. It can scramble what's there, but it can't make something out of what is not there. And it has no ability to create something new. You know, how could any creature choose the mutation it needed? I mean, as I said a moment ago, let's assume a reptile, supposedly that we've been told in our schools and education systems, changed into a bird millions of years ago. You know, and by the way, for that, we have to assume it was able to change from a warm-blooded to a cold-blooded system, change its entire respiratory system, and change its skeletal structure. It's a little bit more complicated than they tell you, isn't it? You don't get that kind of information. You just get the pretty little picture of this bird that suddenly kind of its, its fingers afraid a bit and now their feathers. Oh, well, everybody believes now that could fly. But they don't talk about those other complex things, which are way more complex than actually just the transition from, from reptilian skin to, to feathers. But again, how would a reptile choose that its front legs became the feathers? And why would the mutation not randomly occur on the rear legs? How could any creature guide the random unguided mutations that would be necessary? And why would the mutation affect both sides of the body in exactly the same way? Have you ever thought about that? If we're dealing with a mutation, I mean, you've probably played board games in the past. You know how difficult it is to roll two sixes. It happens, of course it happens. But we're dealing with something that's statistically way, way, way more complex than that. And it would be like every time you rolled the dice, you always got the same double six. Every single time you did it. Impossible. We know it's impossible. And yet that's what evolutionists would really have us believe. And why at the same time? Why would these mutations occur at the same particular time in the creature's development, in the history of, of the world and so on? It just doesn't make any sense. Again, what we're often not told is that for every beneficial, and there's a big question mark over that term, but beneficial mutation that occurs, there'd be 10,000 mutations that are at best neutral, but many of which would be lethal. So they actually kill the thing that supposedly is being worked on by these processes. And given the number of mutations required to change one creature into the other, the odds really are stacked against it. This quote is by a guy, Dr. J.C. Stanford, in a book, uh, Genetic Entropy and the Mystery of the Genome. It's a catchy title, isn't it? I'm sure you want to go and buy that. But actually, it really is a very good book. Um, the guy makes this point. Let me just read this quote. He says, We've reviewed compelling evidence that even when ignoring deleterious mutations, that's mutations that have harmful effects, mutation selection cannot create a single gene within the human evolutionary timescale. He says, when deleterious mutations are factored back in, we see that mutation stroke selection cannot create a single gene ever. This is, this is a scientist making this statement. He says, this is overwhelming evidence against the primary axiom. By that, he's referring to the theory of evolution. And he says, in my opinion, this constitutes what is essentially a formal proof that the primary axiom is false. From a scientific basis, evolution does not work and cannot work. Just a little bit more, just talking about design. I want to get our minds back onto our great God. Think about the woodpecker. They have this incredibly strong beak, which they need to keep knocking on the wood, they, they break the wood, they try and get inside the bark to get the insects out and so on. 
And they've got special cartilage that's behind. And then again, that stops so, so that every time it bangs its beak, it doesn't push it straight through, through the back of its head. And by the way, whenever a woodpecker bangs its head, it shuts its eyes to stop its eyes being forced out as well. And if you've ever heard a woodpecker knocking on wood, you hear this it's very, very fast. They've got these resilient tail feathers that also act to provide balance when it's hooked onto a tree. The toes of a woodpecker are arranged, in a, rather than like a normal bird, if you've looked at a normal bird, you've normally got three toes at the front and one at the rear. But a woodpecker has two and two, so they can grip on to the bark of a tree better. And it's got this incredibly unusually long tongue with these special barbs and this particular glue that doesn't allow it to get stuck up in its mouth, but it allows it to put its tongue into the tree and to get the particular insect. And the insect gets stuck to the tongue and it pulls it back out again. Now, just taking one, the European green woodpecker, the tongue goes down the throat, out the back of the neck, around the back of the skull, beneath the skin, over the top, between the eyes, and terminating just below the eye socket. That's amazing. Come on, you can't tell me that is the product of time and chance and evolution. That's the product of the work of a great God. Migration. That's another thing we're talking about, these creatures, these birds. But how does a young bird instinctively know how to travel 25,000 miles to its destination with no map and no previous experience? I mean, it's still a question mark. And of course, you listen to things on, on TV, David Attenborough will give you various ideas and theories and so on, but they still don't know how animals do this. Now, this one is an incredible one, the golden plover, this lovely little birdie. This creature, when it gets to kind of migration time, flies from Alaska down to Hawaii. It does this every year. The problem is that this bird starts off with 200 grams in terms of total weight. Um, now, if it were to fly on its own this distance, it gets to a point about 130 grams, and it's somewhere in about 72 hours into its flight, and it would just run out of energy. It would fall into the sea, and it would die. However, they fly in formation. And by flying in formation, one of them would take the lead and then fall back and another one takes the lead. It actually allows the bird to get all the way, these 88 hours of flight. It gets there and it's still got enough reserve to survive. That's incredible. I mean, when you set off on that journey, that's not something that you can just hope to get right en route. You, this has got to work. It's designed, it's built into these incredible birds. This was just a picture I got. It was actually, I was looking for something for work one day and I stumbled across this. It's like a, just a motivational quote. But let me just read you this, this comment. Uh, this person says, this is not a, 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 from a Christian perspective or so, but he just said, I read about the reason migrating geese fly in a V formation. Each goose flapping its wings creates an upward lift for the goose that follows. When all these geese do their part, the whole flock has a 71% greater flying range than if each bird were to fly alone. Also, when the goose begins to lag behind, the others honk it into position. The teamwork applications here are tremendous. I'm sure it's at least 71% easier to work the teamwork way, flying in the flock, than to try it alone. And it is good to have the advantage of being moved back into position if we stray from our goals. Now, again, that was written just purely from a motivational point of view and so on, saying we should work together now. But I think it's interesting because, A, there's this knowledge, there's this incredible inbuilt design feature that they know how to fly to get them to their destination. But the fact there is that kind of honking, that they do kind of help to correct each other. And it just made me think of what we're told in Scripture. You know, once again, we should bear one another's burdens. You know, in the book of James, we're told we should confess our faults you know, to each other. Not sin, it's not confessional like the Roman Catholic Church has. But it's good that we come to each other and say that we need prayer, we need support and so on. You know, there's a lot of things that God has built into nature that we can see and we can draw from. I just want to just highlight another area, though, that evolutionists tend to avoid. And it really makes the problem twice as apparent and, and as difficult for them as normally we would tend to perceive of it. Now, this is a quote from Ray Comfort. He says, If every creature evolved with no creator, there would be numerous problems. Take, for instance, the first bird. Was it male or female? Well, let's say it was male. How did it produce offspring without a mate? If a female also evolved, why did it evolve with different reproductive organs? 
Did it evolve by chance? Or did it evolve because it knew that it was needed by the male of the species? How did it know what needed to be evolved if its brain hadn't yet evolved? Did the bird breathe? Did it breathe before it evolved lungs? How did it do this? Why did it evolve lungs if it was happy surviving without them? Did the bird have a mouth? How did it eat before it evolved a mouth? Where did the mouth send the food before the stomach evolved? How did the bird have energy if it didn't eat because it didn't yet have a mouth? How did the bird see what there was to eat before its eyes evolved? And he says evolution is intellectual suicide. It's an embarrassment. Amen to that. Okay, let's move on because we get to our next day, day six now. And verse 24 says, And God said, this is way more sensible straight away now. And God said, Let the earth bring forth a living creature after his kind. Cattle and creeping thing and beast of the earth after his kind. I mean, these are scientific statements because things do produce after their kind. We know it's a, it's a statement of fact. And it was so. Verse 25, And God made the beast of the earth after his kind and the cattle after their kind and everything that creeps upon the earth after his kind. God is emphasizing the point that everything reproduces after its kind. Maybe he knew that in the 19th century there would be people that would come along and propose a preposterous idea saying that things can produce other than their kind. And we're told, and God saw that it was good. This is God that is doing this work of creation. And again, it's saying let the earth bring forth. And we know from a, uh, a chemical point of view, the, the composition of our bodies of animals and creatures are just made up of the elements that you find in the ground. It's exactly what God says here. Now, we're not going to spend long on these, so just a couple of, or just one, two examples really. Um, you think of a giraffe. A giraffe is incredible. When a giraffe bends down to get a drink of water, it's long, long neck. I mean, these things can be up to about 20 feet tall or so. You know, and they, they put their head down. Because they've got such a strong heart pumping all this blood up to its head when it's standing up, it should, when it bends down, pass out as all this blood rushes to its head. But it doesn't. Because inbuilt into the neck of the giraffe... There's these little channels, these valves that close when they bend down. All except the very last one. Now that on its own would be enough to cause the giraffe to pass out. But it doesn't because the blood goes into a spongy area in its brain. And it holds the blood there. And then imagine a a lion or a predator comes along and the giraffe suddenly got to get up from its watering, watering hole and run away. Well... The problem it would have is suddenly getting all the blood back up to its head, but now it doesn't have that problem because it's got this reserve of blood already there because it's stored in this spongy area. And it's got enough there and enough oxygen in the blood to provide it the energy it needs to start moving quickly while the heart starts pumping and pushing more blood back up. It is an incredible example of design. And I'm sure you've all heard of things like the bombardier beetle that mixes these chemicals together. I mean, that's not something you can experiment with. You know, you get that wrong, then there is nothing, no more future for that creature. It can't evolve, it's dead. But these things do produce these little explosions um, to frighten their prey and so on. As fr- frighten their uh, predators, sorry. Again, just incredible. We, we could look all through God's creation, and there are so many examples of these things. Uh, incidentally, I just uh, there's, um, if you ever watch anything on the BBC, you will find that within normally 30 seconds or so, they're starting to talk about millions of years and the you know, adaption and evolution and so on. There was a, a series that was uh, last year, I think it was, uh, Davina McCall, and I'm not commenting on good or bad on the series. It was just talking about animals in various extreme locations. Um, but the interesting thing is, through the, I think it was a six or eight week series, through the entire series, they did not mention millions of years once. It wasn't necessary. They were just talking about these incredible creatures and how they survive in these incredible environments. And they were just talking about it. The word design was used a number of times. Now, I'm not suggesting they had a particular agenda or not, but they certainly didn't have a biased agenda as certain other um, things have in the past. So, okay, let's move on. Let's look at, then, the creation of man. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. We read, And God said, Let us make man in our image. Now, once again, we see there the Trinity. God said, Let us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, make man in our image. We're going to come back to that in just a moment. But after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, 
We just go back there after our likeness. And then we said before, this is why Satan, and we read about in Isaiah chapter 14, has such a hatred of man because Satan was not made in the image of God. He was not made after God's likeness. He was an angelic being. But he says, I want to be like God because Adam had been made like God. And we're told, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So man is given this dominion, man is given this position, and that's what Satan hated so much. Satan wanted the earth, he wanted to have this authority, and of course he ends up usurping man. We'll talk more in chapter 3 again about that. But verse 27 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. I'm just going to come back to some of those points in a moment. But just to think about this, the information that is contained in the chromosomes of one human being, if typed out, would fill enough books to fill the Grand Canyon 40 times. That's the information in just one. And yet all this information is stored on less than two tablespoons of DNA. No man-made storage system comes even remotely close. And think about this. From conception until birth... The baby adds 15,000 cells per minute to its body. And each cell is more complex than a space shuttle. That's why a pregnant mother feels tired, by the way. There's an awful lot going on. That's a little picture of uh, my now nine-year-old daughter. That was Marla back in the day. But again, design. Just amazing. Well, just let me take you through this very quickly because we've got this kind of chicken and egg problem. What came first? Was it protein or was it DNA? Now, protein is essential for life, but of course all the coding and everything else is in the DNA. We need protein for DNA, you need DNA for protein. So which was it that came first? Well, let me just take you through kind of, in a sense, how to make a protein. You'll just see how complex this is and how ridiculous the evolutionary mindset is. We look at a, a cell... I'm not going to go through all the bits on there, but you can see this is in the notes. You can look at this afterwards if you want to. Lots of complex things. What we're interested in here is the bit there in the center of the actual nucleus itself. You go down to the nucleus level, and then you start to look closely if you really zoom in on these things. And you've got these holes all around the nucleus, these little gateways or pores, uh, entryways in there. And the interesting thing is these pores, these little entry ways are made up of between 50 to 100 proteins that's the kind of thing that's the thing we're trying to build to start with by the way and they're already you have to have proteins because they exist around the nucleus of the cell as you go through these kind of pores acts as like 24-hour security guards to prevent things that are not supposed to be going in from going in only only allowing the things that should have access through and as you kind of look into the the window as it were you see the chromosome that's the name given to this large dna molecule Every human, I'm sure you're aware, has got 46 chromosomes, 23 from the mummy and 23 from your daddy. So that's the way it works. Now, when you look at a strand, you've probably seen pictures of this, of the DNA. It's this kind of tightly woven, like a ladder that's been twisted round upon itself. And as I said already, it's the most complex and, and uh, incredible storage system in terms of data uh, known to mankind. The information on a strand of DNA is digitally stored. Now, that on its own, means it can't have evolved by chance. It's predefined. Now, in order to make our protein, what we have to do is basically take a photocopy. So a machine, a molecular machine comes along, and it kind of unzips, unwinds the DNA strand so that we can get ready to make a copy. Oh, and by the way, that molecular machine is made of proteins. And we go on, and you start to see it unzipping the DNA strand and getting the section to be copied. And as it does so, another machine then comes on and makes a copy of the DNA. This is then called the, uh, the messenger RNA, uh, is the, the copy. It's basically like a photocopy of the original, is what's being produced. And so it comes along and we get this exact copy of the original, and the whole process is referred to as transcription. And then once our copy, the section we're copying is complete, then the DNA is zipped up again, wound up again. 
back to as it was before. And now this new copy then starts heading out of the nucleus of the cell. So it goes towards the, the pores. And it goes through, and again, it's allowed to get through because we've got these proteins that allow certain things in and certain things out. Remember, we're trying to make proteins, but we need an awful lot of them already. And it goes then heading towards another machine called a ribosome. And it goes into this machine, a very complex structure made up of proteins. And this process then begins. And so now this is in there. We've got our copy of information. Now, while that's already happening, independently, we've got another machine, molecular machine, that is bringing along our first amino acid. Okay, and this goes into this machine. So you start to see we've got this lock and key thing. It could only have the right amino acid placed at the right point. And we start to build up this complex chain. Now, from a, uh, a scientific point of view, the building of this chain is not an easy thing. There's a lot of conditions that have to exist. There's certain enzymes that facilitate the joining together. But you start to see at the bottom there, our chain is gradually building up in the right sequence, in the right order of what we're going to make. And everything that's being brought along is being brought along in the right order to check against our messenger RNA. And then once our chain is complete, I don't want to underemphasize how complex all this is to start with, that chain then heads off into another device where it can be a chain can be anything up to about a thousand long, by the way. And it heads into a device which will then fold the thing in on itself. Now, this again is incredible because it has to fold it in a particular way. I don't know if any of you remember the old Rubik's snake years ago. It's kind of this, this little toy you could play with and you had to fold it and you kind of make it into kind of a ball. But you have to kind of fold it in the right way. Well, it's the same thing with a, uh, this chain of amino acids. It has to be folded in exactly the right way to make a protein. If it doesn't, the whole thing just breaks apart. And actually, because of the forces that are in there, it should naturally repel. But again, there's other enzymes at work to stop that happening. It has to be folded in exactly the right way. Now, time it would take for just a small 100, 100 amino acid chain to randomly fold in all the possible permutations eventually hitting upon the right one, which is what will be required for evolution, is estimated to be 10 to the 87 seconds. You and I can't even begin to imagine that. Apparently there are only 10 to the 66 seconds in a 16 billion year old universe, or 10 to the uh, 66 uh, atoms in the universe, I think is suggested. So it's just impossible. And then it comes out of this factory where it's now been folded in exactly the right way. Now it's our protein ready for use. And another machine, molecular machine, comes and moves it and takes it to where it's going to go. Now, Dr. Vij Sidira, who used to be part of the congregation here some years ago, um, he made this in his book, Evolution, um, One Small Speck to Man. It's the evolutionary myth. He said, in fact, the whole process is far more complicated than this and involves a large number of other associated molecules and enzymes without which the rate of formation of these bonds, these peptide bonds, would be very slow. However, he says the ribosome protein-making factory can speed up reactions a million or even a million million times in a typical mammalian cell. It's a mammal. More than one million peptide bonds are formed each second. That process we've just been looking at. It's the equivalent of, this unzipping of the DNA, by the way, it's the equivalent of two strands of, of fishing line. Imagine thin, very thin monofilament fishing line. Imagine them being 125 miles long. So it's from here to beyond the other side of London. Stored up inside a basketball, unzipping it, copying it, and then zipping it all up again at three times the speed of an airplane propeller, all without tangling. That's how complicated this is and how fast it goes. Again, if all the chromosomes from one person were stretched out and laid end to end, it would stretch from the earth to the moon and back again five million times. The code in the chromosomes is more complex and holds more information than all of the computer programs ever written by man combined. So what's our response to all of that? Well, biologists must constantly keep in mind what they see was not designed but evolved. That's the view of Francis Crick who was one of the people that discovered DNA. He says, you've got to keep in mind that it evolved, because if you looked at it, you'd say it was designed. Well, actually, if you lay your prejudice to one side, I will go with what King David said. Because he said, I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knows right well.
You know, we get bombarded on a daily basis by evolutionary ideas. And I just want to encourage you, you do not have to listen to that nonsense. Because the science, the real science, is absolutely firmly on the side, well... God created it all. It's going to be on God's side, isn't it? God is the one who's engineered all of these things. Now, we're told that we're made in God's image. We are essentially a soul. Our soul is comprised of our heart and our mind. That's who we are. You know, if we were to lose part of our body, we don't become less of a person. We are still who we are. We are not the physical shell in which we reside. But the real us is made up of our heart and our mind. The heart is the emotional part of us. The mind, in a sense, is the intellectual part. And by the way, that's why in Scripture we find that God gives us two witnesses, the law and the prophets. The law to bring conviction to our heart. The prophets to convince our mind. These two witnesses that God has provided to absolutely conclude for ourselves that God really is who he says he is, that his word is true. And all our decision making is done between some of those, or between those two parts. Sometimes we make decisions based upon what our heart feels. Other times we're led by our mind. We make a rational intellectual choice. And the heart is, of course, emotionally driven. The mind really reason and logic and so on. Now, again, the soul, the you part, We've also got a component, the flesh. It's the physical frame in which we dwell. And because of sin, that will naturally pull us away from the things of God. But then we've also been given a spiritual component. Now, because of the fall, that component died out. But when we are born again, we're given the Spirit of God. So we're kind of stuck in the middle. We've got this battle going on, pulling us one way with the flesh. That's the world, the flesh, the devil. And towards the things of God, the Holy Spirit. And of course, things fellowshipping with each other, believers, the Word of God, the Holy Spirit himself, all drawing us to the things of God. And we get to make that choice. 1 John 4, 4 says, The greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. There's a number of other scriptures we could look at, and maybe some other time we'll go into that further. I just want to just conclude by just asking the question about Eve. Because we read in verse 27, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created um, he him, male and female, he created them. So a lot of people think, well, here we go, Eve is being referenced, Eve is created. No, not at this point. If we look at the, the words that we actually have in the Hebrew, going as Hebrew does from right to left, we've got bara, so out of nothing, that's the Hebrew word bara, Elohim, that's the plural name, for God. And then you've got those two untranslated letters again, the Alpha and the Omega, or that actually an Aleph and a Tau in the Hebrew. But out of nothing, God, the Alpha and the Omega, and then we have the word Adam. And as you go through this, you start to see, let me just read this, God created out of nothing in the Alpha and Omega, man, in his resemblance, in his resemblance, God created out of nothing, him. Male, and female, created out of nothing, him. You've got the same word. The word that's translated them in our translation, I don't have a problem with that, but the word actually is the same word as we have for him. So what we're reading here is that God created man, perfect male and female in one. And it's not until we get to the Garden of Eden, and we'll look at that next week, that God then separates from man the female part. And that's where Eve is formed, because Eve was taken out of man. So don't get confused. If you read this in chapter 1 and you're thinking, well, isn't Eve there at this point and how does it work? No, this is exactly what the Hebrew says. There is no, no difficulty here. But I just think it's an important point that we just kind of clear up. That Adam was created... The perfect male and female in one. And God, as he looks at all the creation, as he looks at the animals and he sees that there's, and of course God knew this, but that there's a Mr. and Mrs. Dolphin and there's a Mr. and Mrs. Kangaroo and, and so on and so on. And of course we get to Adam and he doesn't have a help me suitable. And so we'll pick that up and look at that next week. So we read, and God blessed them, same word, it's him, and said unto him, it's the same word again, be fruitful and multiply, replenish the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. Just one moment here. Because we've looked at the complexity of those things. 
And God is giving that to us. He says, you have dominion over that. I mean, it's like some really complex thing. Then God is saying, I'm going to put you in charge. Now, doesn't that straight away give us a mandate to look after creation? There are a lot of people go off on major, major kind of tangents on that, that part and end up hugging trees and all sorts of things. And, you know, but clearly here we have a responsibility. Verse 29, and God said, behold, I have given you every green herb bearing seed which is upon the face of all the earth and every green tree in which is the fruit of a tree yielding seed. To you it shall be for me. So this is the food that then God gives to man. So man, again, not eating meat at this point, before the fall. And to every beast of the earth, to every fowl of the air, and to everything that creepeth upon the earth, wherein there is life, I have given every green herb for meat, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. I hope as you have gone through this with us this morning, you you can start to see why God says it's very good. Because it really is incredible what God has made and the complexity and the design. But let me again just remind you that all of this is there for us. It was there so that God could have a relationship with us. In Psalm 119, verse 160, as we saw when we were doing our study, God says that thy word is true from the beginning. You know, that is the Bible. It is basic information before leaving earth. I'll leave that with you. May God bless you. Let's just bow our hearts. Father, we thank you for your design. We thank you for your creation. We thank you that the invisible attributes of God are clearly seen. Father, we may not be able to see gravity, but Lord, we see its effects, and Lord, we have no doubt it exists. Lord, we may not see you with our eyes naturally, but Lord, we see the work of your hands, and Lord, we are in awe. You are an incredible God, and we just thank you for what you've made. But Lord, even more so, we thank you that you showed and demonstrated such incredible love for us that it was while we were yet sinners that you came and that you rescued us. You allowed your son to die to pay for our sin. And so, Lord, may our response be one of gratitude. Lord, just surrendering our lives to you as our sovereign, as our Lord, as our God. So help us, Lord, to walk with you. Lord, each day, just learning more of you, of your greatness and your goodness, your mercy and your grace. And Father, just keep us, we pray. Bless us as we go from here this day. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.